My name is Erwin Fletcher. I'm an investigative reporter for a Los Angeles paper. You probably read my stuff under the byline of Jane Doe with the Hey, It's Better Than Irwin. Welcome to the now playing podcast Fletch movie retrospective series. A bit of a shady character, Mr. Fletcher. But I am adorable. Hosted by Arnie. You have journalistic integrity. Yeah. And you have a sense of loyalty. Justin. You're cleaner than most of the ones we get around here. You smell nice. I expect you'll be popular. And Stuart. Ladies and gentlemen, he sees more than he does know. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. You fucking with me? Come on. Be honest, Morris. Are you fucking with me? We hope you enjoy the show. Go ahead. Make my day. Today we're discussing Fletch, starring Chevy Chase, Joe Don Baker, Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, Richard Libertini, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I mean, and Tim Matheson, directed by Michael Ritchie. This is the now playing co-host who knows podcasting. It's all ball bearings nowadays, guys. Apparently, this is Stuart Penis. And I am guest of the Underhills, Justin Cocktoes. Tones. <laughs> penis, penis. Yeah. <laughs> Fletch! Okay. This is a weird choice. <laughs> I mean, prompted by the fact that we're not just digging into the crate of like, what haven't we covered? Oh, this thing from 1985. There was a new movie this year in theaters just a few months ago. Fletch lives indeed. Yeah. I didn't even know that Confess Fletch was coming out until literally I saw it on streaming as an option mm -hmm. and I got all excited that like Fletch is finally back after years decades of false starts 33 33 years it's been since the second Chevy Chase movie so I was like it's probably now or never right it's probably <laughs> time <laughs> we won't live for the fourth one <laughs> Instead of waiting another 33 years mm. that we cover, yeah, this 1985 classic, or at least a cult classic. Weird, yeah, and more weirdness is... Look, let me just lay it out there. As a kid, I adored Chevy Chase. He was my favorite person on Saturday Night Live. Foul Play, I must have seen it literally a hundred times on cable. It was my favorite movie for a while. I even loved Modern Problems, that thing where he got the toxic waste dumped on him and the psychic powers. I mean, some really horrible films. <laughs> I ate it all up. And yeah, I wouldn't say nothing bad about Chevy Chase until mm, around this time. Like, I think Arnie, you and I went to European vacation and then I rented Spies Like Us and then I was done. You and I didn't go see this movie together, right? I didn't even go to the movie theaters. I rented this. This was definitely a, oh, let's go down to the video store. I guess I'll rent this because here it is. And I don't remember a thing about it. Yes, I hear from people all the time, Fletch, Fletch, Fletch. It's this classic. I couldn't have told you a damn thing about this movie. I know I saw it. I remember some funny outfits. Don't remember a single thing. That's funny. You jumped out on Chevy Chase way before I did. I, I'm right there with you. Big fan of him. I think growing up being a teenager in the 80s, 
Chevys. Most of us were Chevy Chase fans, right? But I don't know. I stuck with them until the Chevy Chase show. Then I was like, oh, Ooh. this is kind of worn thin, huh? <laughs> I forgot about that. He did try to host late night TV, right? Yeah, not very well. I had no idea who Chevy Chase was when this movie came out. What? I had seen Caddyshack on TV, but didn't really pay attention to him. But I had a friend who really was into Chevy Chase. And I remember I went with him to see a movie at a theater and there was a Fletch poster. And I didn't care. It looked like some kind of cop show. And my friend's like, we're going to go see Fletch when that comes out. And he was all excited. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll go see Fletch. And... Then we actually did see Fletch in the theaters, and that made me a Chevy Chase fan. I then went back and saw National Lampoon's Vacation. I went back and saw Under the Rainbow. <laughs> mm. Oh, wow. Deal of the Century. Yeah, there's some I would never do. Like, there's nobody touches those. Wow. And I stuck with Chevy Chase, though, through the 80s. I have to say, you know, Christmas Vacation is another classic Chevy Chase movie. It came out in 1989, same year as Fletch Lives. And then he kind of just went to shit, didn't he? I mean, nothing but trouble, Cops and Robertsons, directed by the director of Fletch, by the way. You just couldn't touch Chevy Chase in the 90s and after. So I really jumped off that train pretty quick around the time of Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I think. Oh, I did see that. That's a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. I forgot about that. You do just, at a certain point, even if you saw them, they don't register. And I think that's what it is. He was very relevant in the 70s and was trying to create this, you know, like many people from Saturday Night Live, they were trying to do that big jump Eddie Murphy had just done it, you know, in, in the biggest way. I liked Chevy Chase more. So it makes sense that they wanted to groom him for a Beverly Hills cop style. I thought he was a cop, but it turns out that this is a investigative reporter. And even more weird, like, this is not just the spontaneous, like, comic improvisations of Chevy Chase wandering around L.A. This is based on a book series that had had like 10 installments by this point. When this thing came out, it was a known property. Yeah, I honestly thought when we were coming to review this that what we were reviewing is Beverly Hills Cop, the ripoff, the PG version with a different Saturday Night Live alum. But this had been in development hell for a long time with a lot of different stars attached, including... George Seagal, if you can imagine George Seagal <laughs> as Fletch. Yeah, kind of. I mean, again, a comedian, someone... The thing is, I went and I read the book, Ernie, I think you did the same. Mm -hmm. I assumed it was a hard-boiled detective fiction that they totally revamped when it Chevy Chase came on board. And suddenly there were jokes where there would be no jokes. Wrong. This thing is, if anything, it's even more silly, the character more sarcastic and playful than he is on screen. I feel like a large part of that book are phone conversations with ex-wives where he's punking them and just, I mean, again, it was hard not to visualize the character as Chevy Chase as I was reading it. You, you wouldn't think that would be the case, but yeah, Chevy made the perfect Fletch when you read that book. It's a quick read and... It's really an interesting writing style. It does remind me of just the stereotype of hard-boiled detective novels. It's written in such a way 
that all I could feel is it had a staccato rhythm to it, where it was like everything was being told to you in first person. It was just a fun read. And yeah, I could see Chase doing all of the wacky things that Fletch did in that book. And they did kind of tone it down, but he did go undercover several times and they took that to the nth degree when making this film. And by the time it got into development for real, they knew Chevy Chase was going to star in it when they brought in the screenwriter. So they were writing this for Chevy when they really started writing checks for this. I feel like the one major difference is it is a little bit more hard-boiled, you know, Sam Spade style. And they do have a subplot that they've cut from this movie involving a 15-year-old runaway girl who Fletch ends up having a romantic relationship with. He's much more of a, like a ladies' man in the book. And like, yeah, he sleeps with this 15-year-old girl and then she ends up ODing and dying. And it just would have been really not the tone of this movie. I'm not sure. In fact, I am sure Chevy Chase would not have been able to take off his little disguises and dramatically go to the place where that storyline goes. So, yeah, they got rid of that. Otherwise, I would say this is largely the same story, that what you see, if you can understand it, maybe it, it walks you through the plot points in more detail in the book. But basically, the same kinds of stuff happens to Fletch. It's two mysteries wrapped in one for his introductory mission. I'd say the biggest change in the book comes at the end. As we're going to talk about in the book, the two mysteries never touch. And here, when writing the movie, they actually tried to tie those two plots together. We'll talk about how successfully they did that, but at least they tried to tie it together, which makes more sense than not. I was dumbfounded that the two plots never coincided in that book. Yeah, but it makes sense they wanted somebody funny for this. I know they asked Charles Grodin. Burt Reynolds was approached. I think he's kind of a has-been by the early 80s. You'd want him in the 70s when the book came out, but... Not in the 80s. Mick Jagger. That was the weirdest one. They actually thought Mick Jagger could play the part. Also, Jeff Bridges. Mm. Richard Dreyfus would have been a strange one. Mm. No, but he makes sense in a way. I mean, yeah, it would have been a different movie. We can all agree Chevy Chase as the lead signals a certain style of movie. And unless he was going to do something bold that I don't think I've ever seen him do and play someone other than Chevy Chase, yeah, it's only going to go one way when you have him in the lead. And they had signed him to this movie before they had a script. They had a book, but they didn't have a script. So once Chevy was signed, this was put into full production. The screenwriter knew he was writing for Chevy Chase when he wrote this. And of course, there's a lot of ad-libbing. Apparently, they'd film the scene the way it was written, and then they'd film the scene with Chase just doing whatever Chase wanted to do, and it feels like the Chevy Chase scenes were used a lot more often than the scripted scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all saying the same thing, which kind of gives me pause, you know, over being too excited for the new one. I mean, I think John Hamm can pull this off, but I think we're all saying that Fletch and Chevy Chase are kind of inextricably linked here. You know, if the casting had gone another way, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about this series today. And yet, I will also offer, uh, having read the book and watched this movie, I do feel like there would be an opportunity. They're going to go and tell a different Fletch book. They're not remaking this book. 
with John Hamm, but I do think it is possible to dramatically interpret the story uh, in ways that Chevy Chase never would even be interested in doing. So I'm open to John Hamm, but that's a different era. That is like a Chris Pine, Captain Kirk, and we're talking about William Shatner. You know what I mean? Like, this is the Fletch we needed in 1985. And it was a hit. It's worth pointing out. $8 million budget. And it pulled in summer 1985. $60 million. Opened in number two behind Rambo First Blood. And interesting to note, also still in the top five in that same time. Because movies could do that. They weren't rushed off to video. Beverly Hills Cop was still in movie theaters. It actually outlasted Fletch. And of course, it also outgrossed Fletch. But it made me wonder, how much were they able to reposition whatever they shot into something that, I mean, obviously the score. Like, we can all agree, the musical choice, the original composer was fired. They brought in Harold Faltemeyer mm-hmm. to do some actual laughing <laughs> real fast. But it really does feel like Chevy doing Eddie. Like, if he's putting on lots of disguises, one of them is Axel Foley. It really took me till this viewing to put all that together, Stuart. I mean, because whenever I think of Fletch, I automatically think of it being adjacent to Beverly Hills Cop, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest thing is, I mean, yeah, it's the tone, it's the type of movie, but it's that score. I mean, the score is, I mean, same composer, but geez, and Pete's, he copied his own work quite literally. Mm Mm-hmm. And quite well. One of the things I always loved about this film was its score and its soundtrack. I mean, I listened to bit by bit so often as a kid, and this score, I didn't realize it was the same composer. I wasn't paying attention to composers back when I was 11, but I knew that I liked what this film was doing musically. (laughs) Yeah, when you're unsophisticated and young and all of that, you know, as things copy each other, you're just excited that things feel like what you like. Arnie, I know you were a big Beverly Hills Cop fan, so if you even made that connection as a child, it would only be to applaud that, oh, this is more of what I like. But I didn't put this together like, oh, I like Beverly Hills Cop, and because of that, I like Fletch. I wouldn't have seen them as the same thing, Cop versus Reporter, and hard R-rated versus Chevy Chase's more family-friendly. PG, at least. Yeah. Is it possible for us to recommend Chevy Chase, though, these days? He's been pretty canceled. He kind of canceled himself. I don't keep up with that. So here's the good news for Chevy, is I don't hate you for what you might have done in your personal life. I hate you for spies like us. (laughs) I hate you for (laughs) Vegas vacation. I hate you for the right reasons. Again, it wasn't even like I hated him. I just kind of outgrew it. Like, there was a time where it was really funny and I really connected. I'm sure if I went back and saw Foul Play, I would not adore it the way that I did as a child. And in fact, I think Chevy has said, not my best work. Yeah, and I think the problem with Chevy Chase is is himself. Like, I don't think he ever prepared himself to not be a handsome, charming, funny, leading man. Like, he had no plan going into middle age and after. Mm-hmm. You know, even watching on Community over the last decade, mm. he's an old man on that show, and he's supposed to be, but he's still trying to play it like he's a handsome, leading guy. And it's just like, Chevy, know what lane you're in, buddy. Mm-hmm. 
It's also worth pointing out, this is not just a Chevy Chase movie. It's being directed by someone that had some bona fides as well. Michael Ritchie did do the original Bad News Bears. He did do The Candidate, a Robert Redford political comedy that was a hit in the 70s. Smile, a beauty pageant comedy from the 70s. Uh, it would have been a big deal that he was partnering with Chevy. He would go on to work with Eddie and Mick Goldenchild. Sorry, I like it. <laughs> not holding it against him. Yep, we reviewed that many years ago, available in our archives if you want to hear us discuss our first Michael Ritchie film. This is our second. I don't know that we're going to get to Cops and Robertsons, so Fletch Lives no. will probably be the end of it. <laughs> My point is simply that you have a director that's used to working with funny people and has demonstrated in the past putting together funny work, be it Walter Matthau or Robert Redford. And you said Foul Play wasn't Chevy's favorite work. This is. He's recently said that this is his best film and his favorite of his roles. Mm. It's the one that allowed him to most be himself, he said. <laughs> That's actually kind of what I was thinking. I'm like, you know, you're not acting in this. I would want my best work to be where I physically transform, you know, like, wow, you see me in a new way. This is exactly how I see Chevy Chase. I guess that's just as Justin says, Chevy Chase wants you to see him one particular way. And he's living the dream here in Fletch. All right, well, let's find out what he does. Arnie, give him the plot. Well, this is unenviable because nobody watches Fletch for the plot. <laughs> I have written the most dry plot summary because it has no jokes. If you take this movie and distill it and you are left with only the plot and no jokes, this is what you get. Yep. Chevy Chase is Irwin Fletcher, or Fletch for short. He's an investigative reporter for the LA Times. When this movie starts, Fletch was undercover, investigating the source of drugs on the beach. Mistaken for one of the junkies, Fletch is approached by Alan Stanwyck, played by Tim Matheson. Alan takes Fletch back to his mansion. Alan says he has bone cancer and wants to hire Fletch to kill him. Sensing a bigger story than drugs on the beach, Fletch agrees. Then, for most of the movie, we follow Fletch as he goes undercover in a number of disguises investigating Alan Stanwyck. Fletch discovers the man is high up at an aviation company owned by Stanwyck's father-in-law. He also learns Stanwyck doesn't have cancer, and once every few weeks, Stanwyck flies his private plane to Utah, but uses enough fuel to go to South America. Fletch also questions Alan's wife, Gail, played by Dana Wheeler-Nicholson. The two eventually go to bed together. During this, Fletch begins to be harassed by police chief Jerry Carlin, played by Joe Don Baker. The chief wants Fletch to kill his drugs on the beach story, supposedly because Carlin has a number of undercover officers working the beach, and the chief doesn't want them to lose their leads. Through investigation and intuition, Fletch learns the truth. Stanwyck never wanted Fletch to kill him. Stanwyck plans to kill Fletch. The two men are of similar build, and Stanwyck plans to burn Fletch's corpse so people think it's Alan Stanwyck who is dead. Stanwyck was then going to fly to South America with $3 million of his wife's money, and Alan is taking along his other wife that he kept back in Utah. More, Stanwyck has been drug running. On his trips to Utah, he has been going to South America and bringing back heroin. Stanwyck has then been giving that heroin to Police Chief Jerry Carlin. Those two are the source of the drugs on the beach. Fletch walks into Stanwyck's trap, but has left letters detailing Alan's plan. Before Alan can kill Fletch, the chief walks in. Seeing that Stanwyck was going to betray him and steal his money, and cut off his supply to drugs, the chief shoots Stanwyck. The chief then tries to shoot Fletch, but the chief is knocked unconscious by Gale. 
Fletch gets his major story implicating the chief in murder and drug trafficking, and he and Gale take a vacation to Rio as credits roll. Well, Stuart, you said it earlier, and Arnie, after listening to that plot summary, I think it becomes even more clear to me. I've confused this movie in the past, too, for a cop movie. I always forget Fletch is an investigative reporter, and with just a few different scenes and a few different lines, it very well could have been Fletch is an investigative cop rather than a reporter. And does it really matter that he's a reporter rather than a cop? Or even that he's investigating anything. I mean, again, <laughs> what this screams from the get-go. And boy, did I, I said I had no memory of this. I popped this thing on. When we get bit by bit, this 80s cheese song by Stephanie Mills and Harold Faltemeyer. Love it. I was like, oh my God. I remember holding up a boombox and this is the age I was living in, the technology. Like, say anything style? Like, holding it above your head? No, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm playing the VCR, and I didn't want to go buy the soundtrack, <laughs> so I'm recording from the TV speaker the song so that I can jam out to it later. <laughs> yes. I remember this song. I remember the other one with Dan Hartman. Get out of town, like, and the theme, like, da 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 I was like, oh my god, this is like my best friend. Like it was like like being reunited with something that I loved. I had completely, completely forgot about. And yeah, it does totally signal that this is a party. This is not noir. This is not a crime. Be it cop or reporter, don't worry about the mystery. Just get ready to laugh. But man, are these some boring-ass credits. If you're not rocking out to bit by bit... And how could you not be? Exactly. I can't remember the last time I saw a movie where the entire opening credits are white text on a black screen with absolutely <laughs> no visual flair to keep you engrossed. Visual flair, let's talk about that. Yeah, that is the job of Michael Ritchie, director, and his production team. I do feel... Like, part of my bias, part of the reason why I don't go back or hold reverence for a lot of the things that were in the 80s was that when they were light and funny like this, they were made kind of sloppy. And this movie is super sloppy. Like, it's got no style. Like, you barely can follow the plot. The whole thing feels, like, improvised. It feels like a camera crew followed Chevy Chase around L.A. as he decided to put on wigs and stuff and be silly. Yeah, my memory of it is is that Chevy Chase is in and out of wacky costumes the whole time. Not the case. Not the case. He he puts on maybe two two different disguises throughout the thing, and, and one of them is just the daydream he's having. I mean, there's lots of disguises, but I guess the surprise might be that they're not, like, outrageous, hilarious disguises. For example, he's been hanging out for three weeks on this beach, and you'd think he'd really, like, do some kind of beach bum stereotype, but he's just kind of wearing a lakers shirt and you know looking a little scruffy like it isn't a source of a punchline that he's going to be i think in this movie like 10 different characters yeah you know talking about the sloppy films of the 80s i did watch the one very lame bonus feature that came on the disc and one thing that was postulated is that the reason we get movies like this and caddyshack and meatballs that all feel like they don't really have a plot and that there are a lot of sketches is because Saturday Night Live stars were breaking into the mainstream. That the not ready for primetime players of the 70s became the movie stars of the 80s. And so we got a whole lot of movies where they were just riffing. And then 
in the mid-80s and later, they started to add more plots to them. So we'd start going from Meatballs and get to Groundhog's Day. We'd go from Caddyshack and get to Fletch. And I I just want to say, I do like the comedy genre, but I tend to not hold up the comedies of the 80s for that reason. Because they're badly made. I'll just put it very bluntly. This is a very badly made movie. Whether or not you find it entertaining and funny, like it looks like shit, and it <laughs> barely makes any sense. This is my first time ever watching this movie where I'm really paying attention to the plot. Because coming back to this movie, I knew I had questions about the police chief's tie to Alan Stanwyck. How that all went together, how the beach drugs tied into the murder me plot had always bugged me. And so this time, I'm taking notes, I'm following every step, and every scene is giving you a piece of information that allows you to piece together this information. It is a well-designed mystery, but it's Mm. not well-told. And so because of that, I've never been able to follow the plot because I never really tried until this watching. And here's what I would argue, just to sum it up, because we could spend the whole podcast repeating the sentiment. I probably will. But I'm going to try to be succinct here and just say, you can do both. You know what I mean? It is possible to be funny and slapshot and rough and still make a good movie. Case in point, this film is allegedly, the script was written by Andrew Bergman, whose big claim to fame was Blazing Saddles. A very sloppy sketch improv comedy that I still think looks good as a Western. It's still a well-made movie in ways that I wish Fletch were. So there are two mysteries, and one is not very engaging at all. In fact, it tells on itself right away. How are the drugs coming to the beach when Fat Sam is just sitting there the whole time? Who is his supplier? Like, as they're sitting there watching it, there's this, like, teenager that's coming in with a black eye that says the cops have beat him up. It all but telegraphs that, yes, Gummy is the mule. But I think the police are actually beating him up. The weird thing is, that's not staged. They are actually (laughs) bloodying and bruising him. But then they're giving him the drugs to bring to George Wint, Norm from Cheers, as the Fat Sam drug dealer slash hot dog vendor. Yeah, watching it this time, having read the book, if you're looking, you could tell that Gummy is dropping the drugs at that beginning. But if you hadn't read the book, I think it's completely innocuous I'd never really put that together on previous viewings. Well, if you haven't read the book, you don't care about this plot. I mean, that's what I would argue. Who even cares about drug dealing? You wouldn't know that drugs are here because they don't really want you to think about Miami Vice or Scarface. But the more interesting mystery is when Tim Matheson shows up, Alan Stanwyck offers Fletch $1,000 to come back to his mansion and says, I want you to kill me. That is the making of a good mystery. This could be told as a straight mystery with that plot and not need the comedy. Yeah, I like this. This is very noir. Yeah, like, how are you going to get a new take on a murder mystery? And the answer is, the detective is the one expected to be the killer. That's a good hook. That's a good way into, why would someone want me to kill them? Yeah, a good question to ask. Yeah, and this is this is the plot that I mostly remember. The drug stuff kind of falls by the, the wayside in my memory on this, you know? So this Alan Stanwyck hiring somebody to murder him for $50,000, no questions asked and no answers given, is the meat of this movie as far as I can tell. Yeah, and immediately 
Fletch drops his beach story. Much to his boss's chagrin, Fletch does not care about the beach anymore. His entire investigation, this entire time, putting his career in peril, is investigating Stanwick. And yeah, that's certainly more interesting than who's bringing heroin to an L.A. beach. Spoiler alert, everybody is bringing heroin to an L.A. beach in the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. You almost feel like they could have erased that plot since it really doesn't connect so well, but there has to be a reason that this reporter is there. The important thing is that Alan, the businessman that wants to die, has just been scoping the beach, and we don't know yet why he thinks that this... You know, he he identifies as Ted Nugent. Chevy Chase is just this beach bum, Ted Nugent. Why would he be the only one, a total stranger? It's kind of Hitchcockian, strangers on a train in that way. Why would you hire a total stranger to do this very sensitive job? And, you know, we'll find out. I'll just skip ahead to the end. We'll find out through the course of it that it is because Chevy Chase and Tim Matheson, the guy playing Alan, are ringers for one another. They supposedly look identical and have the same body skeletal structure. So if you were going to leave a corpse, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Chevy and Tim. They are both really tall people. And apparently they both were up for the lead for Animal House, and Chevy didn't get it. So this is the payback. I don't remember Ted Matheson. I don't remember Animal House that well, but I don't remember him. He was in 1941. I feel like he he was a wannabe Steve Gutenberg, which is a real <laughs> low rung on any ladder. <laughs> I don't know. He doesn't do anything for me other than just sort of, you know, telegraph yuppie scum. Yeah, and that was kind of his role in Animal House was he was the one that could present to the dean and the campus as the upstanding member. Yeah, I've seen him in a ton of stuff. It was shocking how much I'd seen him in when I read his filmography, but the only one I actually remember him as, and it seems to fit perfectly with his role here, is in the Ryan Reynolds film Van Wilder, where he was Van Wilder Sr. Oh, that's right. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the raddest fucking dude. That does make a lot of sense. <laughs> so, all right, take away the jokes, and it is kind of mysterious that, okay, I want a stranger in one week's time to come through this window, take my gun out, shoot me, take, I think they talks him up to $50,000 out of my safe, and then, I can't remember if this is only in the book or in the movie. You guys, you tell me, Justin. Is the expectation that Fletch is then going to be the one getting on the plane and living in South America? At least going. He tells him you might want to hang out there for at least a year while it cools down. Okay, yeah. Okay, so yeah. So what an incredible gift to someone that is homeless, down on their luck, hooked on drugs. I don't even know why you think this person would be able to to do that. He does not know that this is Fletch, investigative reporter, in part because Fletch himself has a secret identity. He actually publishes as a woman. We'll see him go to the newspaper. He is Jane Doe, releasing all of these, you know, investigative reports. And Fletch, being a newspaper reporter, we do get the scene of the newsroom with his put-upon boss, played by Richard Libertini, just taking it to the nth degree as the, you know, we say this could be a police film. This could easily be the police chief, right? That's screaming, I'm going to have your badge! Exactly. Yeah, the boss, whoever it is, whatever your occupation is, the one that is never satisfied with your performance. And that, But you know what? I do like that it's a newsroom. I do like 
the front page, His Girl Friday kind of movies. They have some elements of that in the book. And the only thing they've kind of retained is that there is a His Girl Friday here, played by a Oscar-winning actress. We got Gina Davis in a small role doing research for Fletch. She's the one that actually finds out the name and identity of this guy who offered him the job. Alan Stanwyck is his name. And she even finds a picture of him at a cancer benefit with some doctor. Yeah, this would be a year before the fly. So she really wasn't anybody back then. Tootsie. I mean, yeah, she had worked, but she was a model for the most part. And she is very bubbly in this film. It seems like she's having trouble not laughing at Chevy's jokes. Well, you know, in His Girl Friday, it's one of the boys. There's always this stereotype in a newsroom that if a woman's going to compete as a reporter, she essentially has to be a man. She's named Larry here. And it's weird. Chevy Chase hits on everything in this movie, but it doesn't seem like they have any sexual chemistry. It would have been a way to play it. She hits on him. He's like, can I have you for a moment? And she's like, only if you keep me. It's like... I felt like there was a Miss Moneypenny thing going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's what the vibe is, but it feels unfulfilled. I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't have minded if this was about a whole newsroom. We met some of these other people, spent some more time with Gina Davis, but obviously it's called Fletch. We're going to stick with Fletch as he investigates this doctor. Yeah, I mean, there's so little interaction in this newsroom that we just talked about all three of the people who talk and have lines to the camera in this bustling newsroom. (laughs) I do like the scene later on, though, where some newspaper reporter is bending over to adjust the tape on his typewriter, you know, the ink ribbon that you used to have on a typewriter, and Chevy just steals his chair. (laughs) (laughs) The guy sits back down. In the book, he definitely went to various writers and used, like, the social society columnist. Like, he was able to utilize the newsroom's specific skills uh, in ways that, again, I think if you're making a Chevy Chase movie, that's not an ensemble. You don't go and then spend time with, with other people. You make Chevy be the funny one. And I'll just go ahead and ask. So is this movie just a litany of Chevy putting on different identities or at least using funny names. I feel like what we are to enjoy again and again is not the unfolding of this mystery, but the idea is that he's going to just walk in there and say things like Rosen penis. I'm Dr. Rosen penis. I mean, if I'm going to be honest and play my cards a little bit early, we've talked about it already. And it's like, I feel like my memory of this movie is the fun stuff that Chevy Chase is doing on screen, the funny characters, the quips, the jokes, and you know, my memory going into this was I didn't remember much of the plot. I mean, there was bits and pieces here that I could pick out. So yeah, I wanted to sit down and really pay attention to this plot this time. And once the credits are rolling, I gotta admit, the plot doesn't make too much of a difference. It really is, to me, a series of vignettes of watching Chevy Chase be funny. I think the biggest tell on that is later in the film, there's going to be a dream sequence that has absolutely nothing to do with the plot. Like you mentioned, Stuart... Fletch is wearing a Lakers shirt. His obsession with basketball is going to be one of the few character traits we actually get of Fletch himself and not his multiple personas. And he dreams that he is playing for the Lakers. As I mentioned in the cast list, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has a cameo here. And the fact that it's just Fletch in another outfit doing gags tells me everything I need to know. 
that scene is as important as the scene with the doctor, as the scene with the airplane mechanics. If you're enjoying watching Chevy Chase do this kind of stuff, being basically a prop comic, then you're rolling with the film. The way it's told, you can't enjoy this movie for the plot. Clue is a better driven plot, and it didn't really even have an ending. It had too many of them, so it wasn't leading to anything. But it had a better told mystery than this does. This is a lot of funny scenes, and you could just kind of kick back and watch and chuckle. I don't know that there's any huge guffaws, but you chuckle and not worry about the plot. Yeah, I resent that. I do feel like if you're making a movie, you should make a movie. If you're doing stand-up, then you can tell jokes. But a movie has to be more than jokes. Well, and yeah, it's true. I, I hear you. And I guess what I should say is that there's just enough of a plot here to make us go from scene to scene and still kind of care about why they're there. You know, like, it's not completely untied and untethered to anything. There's enough of a plot for uh, to carry us along. Agreed. But is there enough humor here now, as an adult, for you to be like, oh, this is a great comedy? You mentioned guffaws and chuckles. I don't know. Like... Him putting on an afro and pretending to be a basketball player. Proctology jokes, singing Moon River. I mean, these are, they're juvenile. We can all agree they come from a very id place in our minds. They are not sophisticated jokes. No, but they are SNL humor, right? I mean, especially SNL humor of the 70s was pretty juvenile. Still funny, but juvenile. Haven't gone back. Again, didn't really even watch then, but like, have faint ideas of Gumby and Landshark from back in the day. But yes, this is my point, that what we thought was so hilarious and amusing in childhood, at least it's been my reoccurring experience. Going back to the comedies of the 80s, I've found has been a universally painful experience in which I learn nothing that I thought was funny holds up anymore. And this is included. I don't think that these bits are hysterical as he's, you know, getting these little dribbles of uh, mystery. I think some of it still works. There's parts where it's pure Chevy Chase just kind of riffing that I think still works. But yeah, the most part, it's adolescent humor that plays to a 7th grader that, you know, it probably still hits my 7th grader funny bone to some degree. I think, Stuart, when you talked about seeing an old best friend when you heard bit by bit, is how these jokes work for me. I find them funny because I found them funny. And to be honest, I've watched Fletch a large number of times in my life. It's not like it's been 10 years since I've seen Fletch. Oh, can you quote this movie? Oh, absolutely I can quote this movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're in the cult. You're one of these people that has kept it alive as a classic. Yeah, if it's on, I'm watching it, basically. You know, back when I still had cable. Now, I turn it on on streaming less, but when I had cable, this would be on. I was watching it and having a good time with it, rolling with the soundtrack. And so these jokes still work for me. Did I laugh while watching it? I don't think I laughed out loud because I know the jokes way too well. But I was finding it affable, and I do think some of the jokes work. If you didn't remember it, when Chevy Chase breaks into Moon River as the proctologist is sticking it up there and then using the whole fist back there, Doc, I mean, there's stuff that I think I would still laugh at on a first watch. I mean, proctology jokes are low-hanging fruit. You know what I mean? That's all I'm going to say. It's like, you're really, like, 
that's an easy one, right? Like, something goes up our butt. Ooh, I mean, I just feel like I don't take a whole lot of pleasure at being able to laugh at something that low on the totem pole of comedy. I'm not proud of it, but it's funny. Eh, I'll give you this. In this moment, he has some energy. Another thing I'm going to experience is, and I realize it's kind of Chase's persona, is that man doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't get manicky. He's not Robin Williams ever. He's not even Eddie Murphy. He doesn't do voices. He doesn't run around. He's pretty chill. He kind of does a couple voices in this movie. Would you say, by and large, that Chevy Chase is an impersonator? No. I would not. No. I would say that Chevy Chase walks into a room, sizes it up, sneers and says something cutting and dry and that's kind of what he does scene after scene yeah i mean he famously didn't play gerald ford on saturday night live you know what i'm saying like he was just being chevy chase and they called him gerald ford Mm-hmm. right and i think it's weird to have a non-actor as <laughs> the star of any movie ever like that's just a weird thing to have someone not wanting to give a performance but to retain their own aloof identity and let other people do the work around them it's a weird energy it is but it works and it does matter who you have around you at that point and Next, we're going to get introduced to the biggest supporting character, I would think, Alan's wife, Gail. And I think she is good because, again, much like Gina Davis, she seems to not be able to not laugh at Chevy's jokes. And so it's almost like a laugh track with the movie. As she laughs, I laugh. And this is slightly different than Gina Davis because this is actually the sexual tension here. Like, actually, he goes there supposedly to learn more about the man that's hired to kill him, but as soon as he sees her in the tennis outfit, he's trying to give her quote-unquote lessons. We see a lot of flirting. His name is John Cocktoastoy or something like that. I mean, like, he is definitely thinking about banging her, and she knows it, and so the joke really isn't what they're saying. It's the idea that he's trying to get in her pants, and she's... Well, she's still saying, I'm a married woman. It will take her most of the movie to realize her husband is married to somebody else. And actually, this dynamic is, I think, something that we've kind of been flirting around with and haven't really outright said it. But this is the whole ethos of Chevy Chase is that he's probably hitting on you, but he doesn't want to give out the vibe that he's hitting on you, you know? Mm-hmm. He's very cool in that way, yes. He, aloof. And I just don't think of a lot of comedians, particularly of this time, being comfortable, like, not getting excited. I mean, like, you know, like, it's just being animated is a, is a key to timing. So the fact that he's just always going to be so dry, it makes it a challenge for everyone around him to, yes, I guess, carry the film. So you would really hate this movie if it starred Charles Gruden. I take it you're not a fan of Gruden. (laughs) I remember, again, same time next year, that was a Chevy Chase Goldie Hawn movie I watched a lot on cable. Midnight Run I have good memories of. But yeah, I think that also a weird leading man. And I don't think there's too many movies we can cite where he was the one that we cared about. Yeah, I think comedians from Steve Martin... Billy Crystal, all the ones I can think of from this era, with the exception of Stephen Wright, who didn't have a movie career, you really did have to entertain the audience by getting big, by, you know, bugging out your eyes, making voices, you know, energy. 
And Chevy would do that in the vacation films. He would go big in the vacation films, usually at the climax. So here, yeah, he's playing it much more cool. This could be why he likes this movie so well, because he is very cool in it. But I go with the dry humor. I'm not getting tired of it. I'm laughing when he's trying to figure out, is his name Rosen Rosen or <laughs> what his name is? Rosen Penis. Come on. I mean, again, it's all dick, 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 button, dick, button, dick, button, dick. I mean, you're right. It's not a proud comedy. It's low, low hanging fruit. But I do like the rivalry. You always need in a comedy to have this sort of pseudo villain, someone that's not necessarily pertaining to the plot, but someone that becomes a target and has targeted our main character. The fact that he goes to a snooty tennis club, we all presume it's populated by people like Underhill, and we all want to see those people pay. <laughs> and so literally pay, in this case. It's enjoyable that Chevy Chase, whenever he can, orders multiple steak sandwiches and sticks this guy with a bill. What made me laugh, too, though, now is, like, these prices don't even sound that outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> right? 400 bucks for a couple of lobster thermidors and caviar? $100 for a bottle of Dom. I would pay that just for a case. Right, right. I think, you know, again, that's what's fun about going back and watching any old movie is that you look at how things have changed and go, oh my God, these people thought they were living the lap of luxury with $100. Yeah, that's not a lot of money. Anymore. It was back then. It's, I've looked it up. It's about a three to one ratio. So every hundred he spent is 300 today. Yeah. Case in point, if you paid a movie ticket price to go see Fletch, you were probably paying two or three dollars. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I like the rivalry here, and it goes throughout the movie. As he's romancing Gale and returning to the tennis club, he will continue to have to stick this guy, who, again, is introduced shorting a waiter, you know, won't give him a tip after treating him badly. We want him to pay. Sadly, he doesn't. Later on, Gale gets stuck with the tab, but... Oh, he pays in the end. The, the final punchline is the trip to Brazil is on him. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, yeah, supposedly, if we're paying attention to this plot, what we're realizing is that Gail has never met Alan's parents, and that there is some talk about buying a $3 million ranch in Utah, which she hasn't been to. I was about to kind of ask the question of a little bit of confusion here, because it doesn't necessarily play out until later, but is the only reason he's married to Gail is for the money? Like, is that where the money came from in the relationship? Yeah, it's hard to follow, but when Fletch interviews Gail's father, he says Gail converted three million of her own stock into cash to buy this ranch. So it implies that he married her to get the job at the aviation company. She's daddy's little girl who has millions of dollars worth of aviation stock, and he's just a guy who's working there. It's not really hit on the head as hard in this movie as it is in the book. In the book, they really make a bigger point of the fact that she has the money. Yeah, why wouldn't this guy just want to be a social climber? It's not like this woman's unattractive. It's not like he had to sacrifice by marrying her. But yes, uh, we find in the book that he very much had another woman that he loved and did not want to leave. And it's weird, in this movie, we never meet her. So it becomes sort of a a hole in trying to understand, if God bless you, you're trying to understand the motivations of Alan. <laughs> but the trip to Utah is one I could never understand with the attack dog and everything, because everything we're supposed to learn there is done by showing us 
a paper and later he's <laughs> going to drop one line but what they bought was $3000 worth of crap land not 3 million dollar ranch and so the whole joke here is really that he's going to be attacked by a vicious Doberman and get out of it by saying, look, defenseless babies. And the dog goes, what? I think I remember this from same time next year, right? Charles Grodin is trying to get in the house and a dog is, again, there were just evergreens in 80s comedies. And one of them is that a dog is going to come up and probably bite you on the ass because it's always funnier when it's the butt. But yeah, dog humor and physical comedy like this is a classic. I just, again, what I'm arguing is not that they're doing tropes. I'm just going to argue that Chevy's kind of being lazy and that none of this looks particularly funny. Like another comedian could be funnier running from a dog that knows how to open doors with his mouth and, you know, just jump through windows. And I mean, it's like a, it's a fierce dog here. It could have been a funny bit. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of sits this way in my memory as well, is that like I don't think of Fletch as a slapstick comedy all the way through. I feel like it's it's a funny movie overall, but I don't need comedy in every every scene. And I think, you know, a scene like this, does it need an injection of comedy? Maybe a little bit, but it also feels like it went on a little too long. Like the chasing of the dog through the house and all that stuff, I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to be other than showing Fletch is a tough guy and willing to put himself on the line for this. Again, just it's funny that dogs attack you. These kinds of dogs attack you. And, you know, he drives away with the thing. I mean, it looked like a pretty painful stunt. I hope the dog is okay. I know they put the tag at the end of the movie saying all animals were treated nice. But when he goes off the car at the end, it's convincingly wince-inducing <laughs> that this dog has been... Uh, yes, uh, bested by a man who, yeah, it's just a lot of work to find out that the land deal isn't worth $3 million. Uh, That's like a small, okay, so what? Yeah, and it's really hard to tell that that was the $3 million at the end of the film, too. So it really is a plot point that falls flat. The fact that there are two trips to Utah is messy storytelling as well, because here we're in the first trip to Utah investigating this ranch, then he's going to go back to L.A. and then go back to Utah again. You're skipping Gordon Liddy. I can't believe you're skipping Gordon Liddy. The airplane hangar. There's where he does one of his voices. He puts in some fake teeth. He does a voice. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, Arnie, they make it feel like Provo is a suburb of L.A. Like he's back home at the same evening, you know, from one of these trips. It just it feels like it's right next door. But come on, it's, it's, there's some travel time there. You got to get through the airport security. And he did some sightseeing because when he's talking to Gail, he's like, look at this photo. This is the photo that shows you only bought $3,000 worth of land. This is a photo of the dog that attacked me. Here's a photo of the Mormon <laughs> Tabernacle Choir. I mean, <laughs> since we're picking on inconsistencies of logic, I do think it's weird, too, that there's supposedly a commercial airline ticket with this guy's name in it and that he's going to be traveling to Brazil with some other woman than his wife, but then we have a scene in a private airplane hangar, and you wouldn't need tickets for that. He could just go to Brazil like he does to Utah every three weeks in his private plane. Except he wants people to think he's dead so they're not looking for him with the drug money he stole and those money he stole from his wife. If he takes his private plane, then everybody's going to know Alan Stanwyck is alive. He had to register a flight plan or whatever, Whereas if he takes a ticket under the name, well, the name Ted Nugent, <laughs> but 
No, he yeah, he's flying under his own name. Yeah. I mean, I you, you almost had me because I'm like, oh, you're right. That totally makes sense. But now I'm like, but then you wouldn't, if you were thought to be dead in your house, you wouldn't actually want to check in and fly under your own name that same night with a woman that you are legally married to. And there are documents somewhere to prove that. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but all of this stuff, again, what we're to celebrate is that, yes, he's got the pompadour, the false teeth. He's trying to finagle his way through airplane maintenance and opens the luggage compartment instead of the engine. It's one of the more successful comedy characters. It is Chevy Chase doing what I'm saying he's not doing very much of, trying. He's working. He's actually working for the laughs in this scene. And I understand from... I think I read this, that Chevy kept those fake teeth that he'd wear them in public and people wouldn't recognize him because of the way it shaped his mouth and things. So that was kind of a interesting bit that that disguise actually worked. He doesn't even need to dress up. It's not like any of these people know who he is. <laughs> it's just for our amusement that he continually puts on fake glasses and pretends he's having nosebleeds and doing all of this stuff. Well, and also, whenever he's investigating, he's telling these people that are suspicious of him exactly who he's investigating. Like, he, they don't need to know that. He can make up another name. He's, he's always talking about Stanwick to people that he shouldn't be. You know, he, he calls the, the, the realtor when he's in Utah and tells him who he's actually trying to look into. It's like, stop. Just make something else up to find out when he's not going to be home that you can break in. Right, yeah. If you're not actually going to use his help to get your answers, you don't want to leave a trail that someone is looking in on Alan's affairs. But again, these are the questions that you would cite if this were a normal mystery. And this book was an Edgar Award-winning book. Like, mystery writers came together and gave that book an award saying, really good mystery. I will just go ahead and offer again, it didn't have to be this loose. It didn't have to be this loose. There is a pretty good construction here, as Arnie talks about, but it's not holding together. It's Again, it's Gordon Liddy in the airplane hangar, and then he's Harry S. Truman, the insurance investigator, talking to the folks. This is where he finally finds out that there is, in fact, a woman, Sally Ann Cavanaugh, who is also married to Alan at the same time that Gail is. And so there are two women. What a strange plot development. And because we never see Sally Ann Kavanaugh, this also never fit right when I watched this movie. It's like, I never got it. I never really understood why are you going with Sally Ann Kavanaugh and not this total hottie you have as an L.A. wife. I just didn't get this. It would make more sense to me if he had some kind of L.A. mistress or something he was running away with. But to make it a second wife and he's a bigamist and everything, really, really strange. Yeah, but I think it's supposed to help with the love story here. Again, Gail can't really commit to being with Fletch, even though she knows he's a liar from the get-go. She knows he's not, you know, cocking whatever. She is attracted to him, too. And, you know, that comes through. That makes their scenes together kind of fun. But she's really not going to collaborate and sleep with him until she knows that her husband is a louse. And they also minimize something from the book that, again, if they included it, would make you be less charmed by Fletch, I think. He had a lot of ex-wives. And in the book, 
they had a lot of fun with him pitting ex-wives against ex-wives. They would call him up in the middle of the night and say, let's get back together. And he would say, sure, and tell them to be at a time and place and then intentionally not be there. I mean, he dicked with women and treated them badly. And I think here we just have one taste of that. We do have one divorce lawyer that blows in and that's just to signal the idea, I think, that flesh is free and thus can be with Gale. That he's not a bigamist like Alan. But he's just as big a jerk as Alan in the book. You wouldn't necessarily be winning if you chose him over Alan. But also, strangely, Fletch is going to get picked up by the cops. And I thought it might be because he smashed a cop's back window when he was trying to defend Gummy from another beating of the cops. But no, it's because Fletch's boss... And this is, again, told, not shown. And so it's so confusing why this police chief brought him in. Again, confusing when I'm not really trying to pay close attention. And I shouldn't have to fire every brain cell to follow this mystery. Edgar Award-winning book. Yeah, it should be laid out. But the book never tried to make this reach, which is that, that connected with Alan as this drug dealing at the beach plot. But that's not even why he's brought in. The police chief knows nothing about Alan because Alan's trying to rip off the police chief as well as everything else. Fletch's boss called the police chief and said, hey, Fletch is working and he's going to break a story about the source of drugs on the beach. Obviously, we don't know yet, but the police chief is the source of drugs on the beach. And so he's going to bring in Fletch, put a gun to Fletch's head and say, you're not going to run that story. Mm-hmm. Throws him in jail for a bit. I mean, again, all of these are staples. Stir crazy. Throwing people in jail and gay panic jokes were like a staple of the early 80s. All this stuff, I would say it feels like filler. It doesn't feel funny and it doesn't feel worthy of our time that we have this drug plot trafficking thing on the beach. I just, I kind of hate all of this stuff. Yeah, it, it's also, it muddies it up quite a bit because it's not like we need a bigger threat than where we eventually end up with alan you know the for fletch to also be worried about the police chief is extraneous now and it muddies everything up but if you'll think about blues brothers and those big epic chases where they drive through shopping malls and all if your mentality is how do we replicate the saturday night live alumni hits movie hits and give it to chevy because he wasn't in that one well, let's have, for some reason, the cops have staked out his apartment. He jumps into a BMW with a car thief, some teenager with braces, who's told they're going on a smog check, and they have a big-ass chase. It, right in the middle of this movie, <laughs> for no discernible reason, we're driving over medians and flipping motorcycles <laughs> and running through Shriners conventions. Yeah, this scene is... It's a lot of fun. I like that he stole this spider from a teenager, and the teenager's like, are you going to arrest me? <laughs> For what? Car theft? <laughs> it's not the teenager's car. I mean, it's a funny scene, but it is nonsensical because Chase doesn't get caught. It doesn't advance the plot in any way. Why is the chief sending patrolmen after Chevy? Right. He's already had the talk with him, and he's already thrown him in jail and let him loose, so there's no reason to get him again. Well, he had gone back to the beach under disguise. He had the bald cap on and the beard, and Fat Sam and Gummy both called him Fletch. If one of the undercovers knew Fletch was back at the beach, that would be the reason. But again, 
I'm now giving this film a leap that the film itself didn't take. Yeah. It also helps to undercut the tension of the severity of what's actually going on. Like when you have a crazy police chase like this and you have wrecked police cars and possible fatalities, at least major injuries to some of these people, and then nothing happens. Like in real life, that would be, you're brought up on charges, right? Just for that police chase. Here, it's just like, well, as soon as you cross the county line, you're safe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, it's comedies of the 80s rule. You have to have this scene, no matter how much it doesn't fit with what we're doing. I mean, what's weird about this first Fletch mystery is that like, there's not even a crime yet. There's no dead body. If a bigamist wants to go to South America with his real wife, that's you know maybe unethical. We might frown on that, but that's not really, like, it's not murder, right? Like, the murder thing is all hinged on the idea that he's brought in chase to be the double that stays behind that for some reason help me out with this one the reason why he needs chase to be him dead is that he doesn't want his father-in-law and his wife to know that he stole the money and the police chief he's also taking like eight hundred thousand from the police chief okay that's what i couldn't tell is it because he's also somehow mixed up with this drug dealing which again is a conceit of the screenwriter not in the original story, but does kind of help at least make them all part of the same movie. It would really feel disconnected if the police chief didn't know Alan and wasn't working with him. It just makes no sense. But we were at the climax, and yeah, Chevy does one more outfit. He he plays a guy that's real. When I lived on in Venice, there was always a guy who was playing electric guitar on roller skates and wearing a turban and roller skating around. This is an homage, I think, to him. This is where he tells George Went, Fat Sam, I know what you're doing. I know Gummy is your mule. And I think George Went coughs up the fact that, yes, the bad guy is Carland, the police chief. But Fletch saw the police chief and Alan get in a car together, and then Alan got out with a suitcase, presumably full of money. And so we're supposed to know from that that the police chief is getting the drugs from Alan. But again, they never really show us the police chief. Everything is Fletcher's point of view. And so we just see a shape that looks like it could be Joe Don Baker. Agreed. I was very confused by that. It feels like, yeah, second unit work of like, we just need some scenes of him tailing him and going to an overpass and handing over a briefcase or something. But to this moment, until you're saying it, I did not realize that Alan was getting the drugs for them. I thought maybe he was just investing in it because he was a money man. But he actually is flying to South America? Yeah, in that scene in the airplane hangar, one of the guys says he uses enough fuel to fly to South America and back when he just goes to Utah. So he is going to South America, taking the chief's money, buying the drugs, bringing it back, and giving it to the chief, who then delivers it to Fat Sam. No, 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 no. Let's be clear here. The LAPD has plenty of (laughs) drugs to hand out. They don't need to import. That's stupid. But okay, whatever. All right, I get it. It's not the point. But let me give this movie props, because as I said earlier... In the book, you have both of these plots where the police chief is dealing drugs and Alan Stanwyck wants to escape with his wife's money and murder Fletch. But those two plots are completely parallel. They never intersect. Here, at least the screenwriter realized, that's a mistake. We need to tie these plots together somehow. Agreed. And so 
this was the way they figured out to do it. Yes, better that they have a stupid reason for them working together than having two different movies going on at the same time and a random shooting at the end where one kills the other. That would be really annoying. Yeah, the question is here is, is this movie fun enough to make us care whether or not this is airtight? Mm -hmm. Right, yes, exactly so. There is one agenda here. It's a comedy. We need to be laughing. And again, my struggle is that not that it isn't funny, but I feel like Chevy Chase is not really wanting to work for it. Like he really doesn't want to earn the laughs. Like he's half-heartedly committing to it by sort of doing characters, but it's not uproarious to see him on roller skates. It's not uproarious to see him in the airplane hangar. Like you just, you want more. Eddie Murphy, like, let me just throw it out there since there's so many Beverly Hills cop parallels. Eddie Murphy in Golden Child I mean, that movie is a shaggy dog story of him going from to and fro for no discernible reason. And I laugh in every scene because Eddie Murphy has facial expressions. He has a way of talking down and discrediting his, you know, the people that are against him. That's just always entertaining. And Chevy's, I don't know, I guess I just feel like he's too blue blood. He's too yuppie. He's too privileged to feel like, you know, he can tell people off he should be in this tennis club is i guess the way i feel like it it's not satisfying to see him target who he does i don't feel like his half-heartedness is a negative i mean i never even saw it as half-heartedness i saw it as a laconic joke delivery that i think works very well for this persona and for chevy himself i like that he is just dry wit it works for me very well no, Chevy Chase on roller skates, I don't laugh. Chevy Chase not being able to stand back up on the roller skates, I laugh, you know? <laughs> That's where I am too, Stuart, is, I mean, this isn't Chevy Chase giving less than he gives up elsewhere, and it's not him going over the top. This is just what you get when you get Chevy Chase. So if you're in for Chevy Chase, then, hey, he's doing what he needs to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, if you just don't like Chevy, then you're just not going to like this movie. <laughs> And if you liked Chevy, like I did, loved him as a child, it's kind of a strange thing to come back and realize he wasn't as good a father figure as you thought he was. Reprocessing my childhood and going, oh, I guess he wasn't that good to me. But, you know, it seemed like it at the time. But we get to the final scenes here. He walks right into Alan's trap, knowing that Alan's going to try to kill him. And his only defense is, I wrote a letter that's going to expose your plot. Fletch is going to expose this plot whether or not he gets killed. So, of course, Alan is still ready to shoot him. The only thing that happens is the police chief randomly shows up. He was, I guess, following Fletch and wants to know why Fletch is dealing with his drug supplier. And Fletch does nothing in this climax. The police chief shoots Alan. Yeah, which is retained from the book. It was... It was an accident, you know, it was one of those like coincidences that contrivances maybe even of the book. The book didn't end solidly. It ended similar to this, but it wasn't satisfying that in trying to kill Fletch, he actually shot Alan and that Alan kind of gets his death wish all along. I don't know. None of that really played in the book. And here it's even more air misted on. I feel like you barely notice it. The point is that you have Chevy Chase and the woman Hitting people with tennis rackets, kicking people into the balls. Starting gas explosions. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, whatever that was. Make the fireplace <laughs> explode like a bomb. Why not? It's some kind of ending. He gets his headlines. The editor is happy at last. And he can now, yeah, actually go on that airline ride to Rio with Gale. So was that really on location and were they only there for half a day to shoot? Because it was the most overcast day I think Brazil has seen in 30 years. Mm-hmm. It was really on location. They had to convince the studio to let them do it. They then went down there with a small crew, all taking their wives. And because the weather was never perfectly sunny, they spent a week down there until the mm. studio called and said, we're pulling the plug. I don't care if it's not sunny. Shoot today. <laughs> really mm -hmm. felt like that was what was going on with that <laughs> two minute scene. <laughs> yeah. It did. Yeah, I've never seen Rio look so gloomy. Like, we're on this gloomy-ass beach. I'm like, they kind of waited another day for the sun to come out a couple hours? They'd waited several days. The studio was tired of paying for them all to have second honeymoons with their wives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that works about the end shot is the fact that the beach was deserted. You know, it's kind of nice that they have a private beach walk. Whereas had it been a sunny day, they'd be walking, you know, it would feel much more like that drug-ridden L.A. beach, right? We started on a bad beach, we end on a good beach. But let's end this beach of a podcast. Justin, Stuart, do you recommend Fletch? Justin. I mean, I guess this one really comes down to your own sense and sensibility. I mean, if you're already a fan of Chevy Chase, then I feel like you've seen this movie and it's part of your arsenal of Chevy Chase movies that you watch regularly. So, yeah, if that's you, then you know this movie. What can I tell you? But maybe this changes once we get to the new Fletch movie, you know, and that might bring in new people who might not be very aware of Chevy Chase's old work and stuff like that. So maybe my opinion after seeing that and seeing if you need to come back and watch these other Fletch movies to fully enjoy the John Hamm version, I don't know. But, yeah, I guess this recommend is... One of those things that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you can't get out of this. I'm not letting you do this, Justin. Do you like this movie or not? Yeah, if the question is, do I personally like this movie? The answer is yes. I do like this movie. Yes. I think it still holds up and okay. it tickles the same funny bones that it did to me in seventh grade. And maybe maybe I just need to grow up a little bit, but I don't know. I kind of enjoy going back and having some of that adolescent humor thrown at me again. So for that case right there, I'm going to give it a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I'm hearing that from both of you, is that your relationship with this movie in childhood is important and inextricable from your experience now. I was having some of that. I didn't really remember the plot, but again, bit by bit, love the music in this movie. I love seeing L.A. Like many of these neighborhoods, they shot in places I used to live. And so it was fun. You know, it's always fun to see a place you lived before you lived there 20 years before I was there. I was being charmed, but I recognized all of that was like secondary to the fact that I felt like this movie didn't have to be this sloppy. And ultimately, Fletch is a bum. You know, like he just didn't work hard enough. It didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to have a rock solid storyline. It can have, you know, digressions and moments that go nowhere. All mysteries do. I mean, they have the red herrings. But I feel like at the end of the day, I just didn't really like Chevy Chase. And that's, you know, that's kind of a deal breaker. Like, in the end, I wanted him to work harder. You know, Fletch is working overtime is the theme song. I did not see that. 
I did not see him working hard enough in the way that Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, any of the other great 80s comedians would have worked their ass off to have everyone engaged. And I felt like Chevy didn't do it. So I'm going to say mild not recommend. Chevy is a very different comedian than those others you named. He just has a different style of comedy, and this is it. But, like I said before, Chevy can go big. The end of Vacation, where, spoiler alert, he takes John Candy hostage. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that in years, and I remember loving that one, but now I'm afraid. Or Christmas Vacation, where he finally breaks and starts screaming at everybody he can go big but that's not fletch that's clark griswold by and large chevy does play a pretty laconic type of character and he does so well here the question is do you find him funny and the thing that i like about this movie is there are so many jokes that if you don't laugh at dr rosen penis Maybe you're going to laugh at Dr. Jellyfingers, you know? They're going to just keep coming at you in such a way. And this movie, with its soundtrack, with its jokes, it's just affable. It's just a movie that I can kick back and let wash over me and not pay strict attention to the plot. But the time I did, I gotta say, they tie their knots. The plot does hold together if you catch every single line of dialogue and are really wanting that mystery to hold up. It will, probably because it's based on a book that cared about the mystery more. But I find it to be funny. Now, I'm curious how I'm going to feel going into Fletch Lives. Fletch, I watched a lot. Fletch Lives, I think I've seen it once. Oh my god. (laughs) Really? Okay. It just wasn't in the streaming rotation. This is the one people love. This is the like the whole like Fletch, Fletch, Fletch has all been about this. My memory of Fletch Lives is not that it really hit the home run. <laughs> it did not live up to the promise of this very <laughs> mediocre movie. Okay. Well, it's going to be interesting because it's not even based on a book. Like you said, there were like 10 books in the series by the time this first movie came out. For the second one, they're like, nah. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) All right. I'm intrigued, but I'm not optimistic. How about that? I want to see how Fletch lives on in the sequel that came four years later. I think I did read it. Don't remember a damn thing about it, but we'll find out next week. I remember the trailers. I remember there's a dead girl. A cop says, did she feel all right last night? And Fletch says, she felt fine to me. That is my entire memory. Oh, and he goes into a prison cell again. (laughs) Ah, well, again. With Mr. Dover. Yep, I just remember Louisiana, and that's about all, all the memory I have of that movie. So it'll be fun to go back. Indeed. I don't remember a thing, but I do remember Nick Cage in The Wicker Man. And if you can join us, I really hope you do. It's really worth your time. We have a contentious uh, remake of The Wicker Man that we're covering this Friday for Platinum Donors. And should be a lot of fun to relive the bees, the honey, and a lot of women with black eyes. (laughs) And this Thanksgiving, I want to say I am thankful for our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Whether you're able to donate for Platinum and join us for The Wicker Man, or you just tune in every week, or you tune in occasionally, thank you so much for sticking with us. And 
engaging with us on the Facebook group, through emails, what have you. Just thanks for making this work we do very, very fulfilling. Indeed. Here, here. Uh, we have a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving, and it's every one of you listening now. And Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, go out and get yourself a nice piece of ass. Well, let me just say I'm glad that we finally solved this case together. We? We. We three. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Why don't we both relax and go in there and lie down and uh, I'll fill you in. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Five stars! Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Are you always this forward? Only with wet married women. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. All I needed now was a computer and a 10-year-old kid to teach me how to use it. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. I don't shower much. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. I had to keep digging without a shovel. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. If you've got $1,000 in the bank, don't be afraid to send the whole $1,000. $1,000 just to listen? I don't see how you can pass that up. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. Cash or check or MasterCard. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. And bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia while you're out there. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Unless my people hear differently, that letter goes out at midnight. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Oh, I don't know. I guess I thought after a lifetime of hedonism, it was time to rededicate my life. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He truly defines grace under pressure. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. They're still working from home. Can you believe it? They're fucking babies. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Shut up and talk. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Okay, I'm very sorry. Uh, I was wrong, and you have to admit it was a pretty good theory. I just missed a couple of it. 
Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. That's why you're such a great reporter, you know the facts. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Well, now, I'm no lawyer, but uh, I do believe that's a violation of my rights. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You're not making this sound any less sketchy, bro. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Sincerely, I am Fletcher. P.S. Have a nice day. Starring Chevy Chase, Joe Don Baker, Dana Wheeler Nick, Dana Wheeler Nick, Dana Wheeler Nicholson. Say that three times fast. Mm-mm. I ain't gonna <laughs> ever say it again. Next, we're gonna get introduced to the biggest supporting character, I would think, Alan's wife Gail, played by that Nicholson name I just can't say three <laughs> times in one podcast. 